Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn for our New Testament reading to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 21 through 33. And then our sermon today is on verses 25 through 33. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. Father, we pray that as we learn, that we would be learning from you. We pray, God, that we would understand this passage, that we would be able to apply it, and it would be to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some concepts in Scripture that are hard for us to get our minds around, uh, like the Trinity, or the full deity and humanity of Christ, or the nature and character of God, or the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Well, today, we're looking at another mystery, and that is the union of Christ and His church. Now, to explain this mystery, the Apostle Paul has employed a metaphor and an analogy. The metaphor has been one of a body. Christ is the head. We are members of the body. And the analogy has been that of marriage. Just as the wife submits to her own husband in the Lord, so does the church submit to Christ. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves his bride, the church. Now this section of Ephesians 5 is mainly about Christ and his church. The problem we have, in a sense, 
is that we're to understand one mystery by looking at another mystery. I think it's fair to say that marriage is a mystery to many of us as well, even those of us who are married. It's not that we don't understand what it is, we just don't understand the other sex. Men and women famously find one another to be, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. How can we understand the union we enjoy with Christ when we can't always understand a union we have in our own marriages, or for those of you who aren't married yet, what that will actually look like? But Christ's love instructs us in this. Often when this and like passages are read or taught, the focus ends up being on the practical advice which Paul gives. And let's face it, we like to be practical, right? But that is not the main message of the passage. The focus of this passage is the gospel. The love of our Redeemer and of our Lord. The love of Christ towards us, then, is instructive to us as we relate to one another, even in marriage. Now, last week we looked at the first part of this section, verses 22 through 24, and what it means for the church to submit to Christ and for wives to their husbands. And today we're looking at the self-sacrificial love of Christ and how Christ's love instructs husbands. You see, Jesus is the standard for husbands. He's the example for how husband is to relate to his wife. And, of course, this teaching is not unique to Ephesians. In Colossians 3, 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what is in view here is not rule. What's in view is love. What is, though, somewhat unique in Ephesians is that he sets forth the grounds for that love, namely the love of Christ. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is because Ephesians 5, 22-33 is not merely helpful advice for husbands and wives, although that certainly is there and it is certainly helpful for that. But what is mainly in view and what Paul expounds on is the unique and mystical union that the Lord Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. So marriage is an analogy which describes the relationship of Jesus to the church. And so we begin with our first heading, Christ's love for the church. And the first command given in this section, you'll want to note, is not submission of wives. Remember, that was a verb that was supplied from verse 21 in our translations. The first imperative is actually in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. An imperative, by the way, is a command. And you'll also know that the imperative is not to rule over your wife, it is to love your wife. Now I mentioned last week the ethics of Roman and Greek culture which taught husbands how to rule over their families. 
I mentioned the pater, uh, the pater familia of Roman society, which held complete uh, autocratic control over his family. The prevailing idea in that society was that husbands and fathers were kings, almost godlike in their power and authority over their families. Now that idea is turned on its head as the scriptures present a very different sort of husband, namely a servant leader. The scriptures paint a picture of a husband who loves and serves his family sacrificially, particularly his wife. The love of human husbands then is rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ for his church. There is an analogous relationship which imposes upon men an obligation. And that is seen in the imperative given. Husbands are to love their wives in the same manner in which Christ loves his church. And so this brings us to an important question that we naturally will ask. And that is simply this. How did Christ love the church? Well, the answer comes to us quickly in verse 25. It says that he gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ... The Son of God was born in humility and willingly and gladly laid down His very life for the sake of the church. Now, if in fact this uh, gives an obligation to husbands, does this mean that husbands are then to willingly lay down their lives to die for their wives as well? Is that what the picture were to understand And the answer is, in a sense, yes and no. It depends on what you mean. Certainly a husband should love his own wife in such a way that he would willingly lay down his life for her so that she could live. I mean, the chances of that are pretty slim, right? I suppose most of you men would do that very thing, though. Push came to shove. The life of your wife was at stake. You would gladly die for her to protect her. Jesus paid the ultimate price for his bride, the church. It must, of course, be borne in mind the purpose of the instruction here. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He came to bring salvation for his people. This was the purpose of his laying down his life. His sacrificial death was the ransom price set to set the captives free. His love is an example And a rule, that is for sure, but is also foundational and infinite. And so in that sense, husbands cannot meet the standard. Human husbands cannot meet the the standard because human husbands don't save their wives. They don't provide salvation for their wives. In this sense, none of us can really love as Christ loves. Not in that sense. With that being said, husbands can seek to live sacrificially, loving his neighbor, namely his wife, as himself. A husband could seek to have a deep self-sacrificing and nurturing love towards his wife. But a love 
And a, a love like that is one in which we still fall short on regularly and miserably. And so the question comes to mind, why does there seem to be an impossible standard given? One in which a human husband could strive for, but not attain. Well, this is the kind of love that humans, human husbands can strive for if they're in Christ. And it is through this, it is through uh, what Christ does, that Christ is actually instructing us. See, Christ is the model of love of fellow believers towards one another, and in particular, the husband's love for his wife, seeking the good of others before your own. Christ's love is one of sacrifice. Christ's love is one also of rescue. Jesus gave himself for the church. And so as we consider the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as human husbands, we ought to be humbled. We ought to be driven to our knees again by the one who does all things well. And we are driven again to Christ who laid down his life for a particular purpose, whose sacrificial love was, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. And keep in mind the metaphor. Husbands are members of the body, as are wives. This is the bride. Jesus came to make his body holy, to set us apart. He came to cleanse you and me from sin. This is the purpose of Christ's work on the cross, to make unholy people holy, to make sinners into saints. Because the reality of the matter is that every person on the planet is a sinner. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none who is righteous, no, not even one. God had created the world very good. It was perfect in goodness, perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness. Man was in complete and perfect communion with his creator. But mankind rebelled against against the holy God when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ushered sin and corruption as he broke the commandments of God. And so mankind had fallen into sin and had been re- has been in rebellion against His Creator ever since. So every single one of us are guilty before a holy and just God. We have a sin nature, and each of us have sinned against the perfect rule of our Creator. And because of this, cleansing is necessary. We need to be cleansed from unrighteousness. We need divine rescue. And so Jesus came to set us free from bondage to sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the love of Christ. Christ's love for the church is manifested by His giving Himself for her that she might be sanctified. And this is accomplished, it says, by the washing of water with the Word. Now, what does that mean? Exactly. What does it mean when it says washing of water with the Word? 
Well, for some, anytime water or washing is mentioned, they immediately assume baptism is in view. And it may be that baptism is here. It's not clear, though. Certainly, in baptism, there's a picture of washing away of sin. Uh, Many of the commentators uh, see baptism at least partially in view. But baptism doesn't save us. We're not saved through the sacrament of baptism, though it is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace and of the washing and the regeneration of Jesus. Perhaps in that sense, this is in view because baptism itself points us to spiritual cleansing of the Word and the Spirit. In fact, baptism, rightly administered, is always connected with the preaching of the Word. And so what Paul is talking about here is spiritual cleansing, which occurs through the preaching of the gospel. Let's try to illustrate it this way. If you were to get physically dirty, say, from working outside in the yard, you might come inside and wash with soap and water. The water along with the soap, is the cleansing agent which removes the stain of dirt. The problem isn't that we're dirty on the outside, we're dirty on the inside. Washing is a figurative expression which illustrates spiritual cleansing. And so spiritually speaking, Jesus cleanses, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He is the cleansing agent, the water which washes away our sin. For He is the Word incarnate, John 1.1 reminds us. And it is by faith in His gospel which we're saved and cleansed. It is the Word of God, read and preached, which is the effectual means of bringing salvation. The sinner must hear that Word and confess that Word as truth. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is how the Christian is washed by the water of his word. Paul, in uh, writing in Romans chapter 10, put it this way, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the sinner is cleansed through the hearing and preaching of the gospel as they believe the gospel, as they respond to the gospel by faith, having been transformed by the Spirit. So this is the Word and the, and the Spirit at work. You and I, miserable sinners which we are, have been saved and cleansed and made holy through the Word of God. This is, by the way, why the the Reformed have always emphasized sola scriptura. We're not saved through the sacraments. We aren't saved through following the law. We're not saved through various works and rites and following certain rules. We aren't saved by the church as an institution. We cannot save ourselves. This is a point which we cannot overemphasize, for there are many who want to add to the gospel. Many who want to say that you're saved by faith plus baptism. 
etc., etc., etc. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So Christ cleanses His church as the Word is read and preached, washing with the water of the Word, as it were, verse 27, so that, so this is the reason He's doing this, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is here that Paul gives us the ultimate end of Christ's giving of Himself for the church. This is the reason that He sanctifies her. This is the reason that He washes her with the Word. It is to present her, that is the church, to Himself as His own particular possession. The church is to be holy, without the slightest defect or the tiniest of flaws, because we belong to Him. We are His. 1 Peter 2, 9 reminds us of this when he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. You belong to Jesus. You're a follower of Christ. Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice on the cross and in his continual work by his word and spirit, is sanctifying his bride, the church, of which we are members of. And he's doing this so that he can present her to himself without any kind of disfigurement. So that she would be holy. So that she will be just and right and good. And he's doing this because you belong to him. What a marvelous truth this is, isn't it? You and I belong to the Son of God. You and I belong to the King of Kings. If you are trusting and resting on him alone for your salvation, then you are possessed You are a possession of the one who has chosen you to be a holy nation. Christ came to cleanse his people from their sin and to present himself, to present us to himself, to be eternally his holy and blameless church. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins and say, okay, well, you know, now you don't go to hell, but. You know, good luck. No, he he saves you from your sin and you belong to him. And he loves you as his. Now, what does this have to do with husbands, though? Remember that Paul continues to employ a metaphor and an analogy. He's doing both of these things. We are members of the body of Christ. Jesus loves his body. Right? So he's talked about the love of husbands. He's talked about how, uh, as, the, as the, the perfect husband, Jesus loves his bride. Now he's talking about and also how Jesus loves his body. He, and what does he do? He cleanses his body. This is the metaphor. This brings us to our second 
heading, husbandly love. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Paul says, in like manner, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. If you love your wife, then you are loving yourself. Remember that there's a mystical union between husbands and wives. In marriage, they become one flesh. Now, of course, not physically one, but they are joined together. She is, Genesis 2.23, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so when a man and a woman are joined together in marriage, they become one. They are in, one in relationship. They're one in relationship, not in material identification. They, they don't meld into one person somehow. Uh, nor is it the case that men and women are incomplete persons until they marry. There, there are many misapplications of this text. It is simply the case that a man and a woman in marriage enjoy a union and a fellowship which is unique to their relationship. It is like no other relationship you will have with any other believer. And so here's the picture. Just as a man will care for his own physical body and take care of himself, he should also care for his wife. Because Jesus cares for his body, the church. Remember, Jesus is the head of the body. We are the members of the body. Jesus cares for his body. He loves his body. In the same manner, the husband should care for his body, his marriage, his family. This is what is announced in Genesis 2.24. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ reminded us of in Matthew 19 when he adds, What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. This is said because neither Moses nor the Lord Jesus Christ suggest that husbands and wives ought to be one flesh nor that they could at some point become one flesh. No, Jesus and Moses both announced that husbands and wives are one flesh. And because of this, because this is true, when a man loves his wife, he is loving his own body. Because there's a close union between husbands and wives. And for the husband... The maintenance of his wife is caring for his own body. To do otherwise would be unnatural and irrational. Look at verse 29. Paul says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. See the metaphor there, right? The metaphor of the body. Men take care of themselves. Christ takes care of his church. Now, you might say, well, what about a person who doesn't like their body? Right? Well, even a man who has a body which does not altogether suit himself still loves himself. He may well wish himself to be handsomer. I certainly do. He may wish that he was healthier, stronger, more active. There may be things that we might want to change about our bodies. Nevertheless... For both men and women, your body is your body. It's you. 
You nourish your body. You cherish it as tenderly as though you were the best and loveliest of men. It's unnatural for anyone to not care for his own body, to clothe and feed and maintain in some fashion. That's normal. In like manner, it would be irrational for a husband or for a wife to hate the other for their one. You see what the, you see what the picture that Paul is painting for us is. For husband to hate his wife is for the husband to hate himself. This is contrary to reason. And it actually shows a lack of understanding of the union of husbands and wives. Perhaps this is the case with abusive husbands. Their hatred toward their wives is really a a manifested hatred of themselves. And that kind of self-loathing shows an absence of the gospel and runs contrary to the word and to nature. What is natural, what is biblical, is for the husband to nourish and cherish his wife. Just as he does his own body. Because they're one. Christ does this for his body, the church. And that's the point, isn't it? We are members of his body. Christ nourishes and cherishes us. He cherishes the church. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her with the word. He cares for his body. Just as a man would love his own physical body. Now, there are some manuscripts which read that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You'll find this in both the King James Version and the New King James. Now, the evidence of the manuscript witnesses leads us to conclude that this was most likely a scribal note drawing from Genesis 2.23 and anticipating Paul's quote from Genesis 2.24. Jesus took on our nature, coming in flesh and bone. But more to the point, there is a mystical union of the church and Christ. This union is in fact celebrated and remembered in the Lord's Supper where Jesus took bread and wine and said, this bread is given for you and this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And so in the, in the supper, we're reminded again of the mystical union which Christ has with his church. But this is a mystery. And Paul says as much. Just as the church is united to Christ, this is a major theme in Ephesians, the union of Christ and His church, so is the husband to his wife. And this brings us now to our final heading, the mysterious union. Now what has been said up to this point about the unity of husbands and wives is then reinforced by a quote from Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a natural bond which exists between a husband and a wife. God has created this relationship in a way that there's no alternatives to it. Contrary to what our culture wants to say. There is nothing else like it. Friendships, dating, other relationships, none are like marriage. 
It is unique, and it is a picture of the even greater and united relationship of Christ with His church. And Paul says this mystery is profound. Now, lest we think he's actually talking about marriage, he says what he's talking about isn't marriage itself. What he's talking about is Christ and the church. That's the profound mystery. The mystery is that what Genesis 2.24 is speaking about ultimately isn't really about marriage after all. It's really about Christ and His church. And marriage is a picture of that for us. Now how do Christ and the church become one? How is it that they are united? You'll notice Paul doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell us exactly the exact way in which this is true. He just announces that it's true. And we can talk about union, we can talk about how we, the church, are one with the Lord. But we really cannot intelligibly explain how it is. And I think that's by design. The relationship between Christ and His people is supposed to be a mystery. We're not supposed to know the exact mechanics of the thing. But we are supposed to believe and be in awe of it. Paul, in discussing the relationship of husbands to their wives, points to the relationship of Christ and His church for guidance. One cannot explain how it is that Christ becomes one flesh with the church any more than one can really explain how husbands and wives are one flesh. They just are. Just as a husband and a wife are vitally connected, so is the church to Christ. And that really is the point here. And so regardless of the fact that we cannot comprehend the mechanics of the thing, we confess and believe that there is true union. A profound mystery whereby the church is united to her Savior and the one who has presented her to himself in all splendor, having made her holy, washing her with the water of the Word. Verse 32 lets us know that the profound mystery that he's been describing this whole time is Christ and the church. That's what this whole discussion has been about. Marriage is an illustration for us of Christ relating to His bride. Nevertheless, even even though what's really mainly in view is Christ and His church, Paul does have a word for husbands and wives. In verse 33, he says, However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so the command is repeated. Husbands are to love their wives. This is parallel to what has already been said in verses 25 and in verse 28. And then the wife respecting her husband is parallel to verse 22. Now where it says respect her husband, the word respect is uh, uh, phobotai, which from where we get the word phobia. And you probably have already guessed what that word means is fear. Fear, as in how we are to fear the Lord. Now this reiterates the point which was already made last week, which is what is what what's in view here is honor, respect, and regard. This, is, uh, uh, this, this understanding helps us to complete the picture. 
as husbands are to love their wives like Christ, wives are to honor and respect their husband just as the church honors and respects her Lord. Christ loves his bride. I hope you see that. This is his body. We are members of his body. We are connected to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In like manner, the husband is to love his bride as Christ loves. And this is the standard given. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love. But as we pointed out, the standard is impossible. How can humans, human husbands love their wives like Christ, selflessly, sacrificially? When we consider the relationship of husbands and wives, it needs to be kept in mind that the two are sinners. We're living out an analogy. But our hope is not found in living out the analogy perfectly. We're not saved in our marriages. We're not saved by living out the analogy perfectly. Certainly we need to strive to love and respect as we're called to. But these are, these are not our means of salvation. As we fail in our duties as husbands and wives, we are again driven to the hope, which is, which is the focus here, the gospel of Christ. And I hope, which I, I hope you see is clear in this passage, our Savior who came to cleanse us from sin. To focus all of our attention on only the practical advice of the passage, I think, would be to miss the point. You see, the gospel is the point here. Christ came to cleanse his bride. He came to renew and restore sinners. And we have been made partakers of those benefits in Christ. If you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ by faith in Christ, then you are a part of the body. You are a member of the body. And Christ loves his body. It would make no sense for Christ to hate even one part of his own body. And your hope then is in the fact that you are being cleansed. You are in the process of sanctification. And though you and I fail in our, in our daily lives, in our relationships, we are being cleansed and renewed by the Word and Spirit. And so there's always hope for even the most difficult of marriages. When the man and the woman are committed to the Word of God and Jesus Christ is Lord. The standard gives us that which to strive for. And the good news is that although we fail, we can rest in Christ our Lord, who is the best of husbands. The best, best husband any bride could imagine. And so take heart. For Christ is washing you by his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ may be the standard for husbands, and we may fail, but he does not. This is a, Because he doesn't fail, because he is holy and blameless, he is pleased to be in union with us, for this we praise him. What a marvelous mystery. Let's pray together.
Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word and for these truths. We thank You that You love Your body. We thank You that You love Your bride. We thank You that Jesus gave Himself for us. That He washes us with His Word. We do admit, God, as husbands and wives, we fail in the duties you've called us to. As husbands, we do not love our wives as Christ loves his church. And as wives, we don't respect and submit as you've called us to. But we thank you, God, and give you all praise. This is the reason that Jesus came, to save sinners such as us. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.